I'd like to bring you greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ from your brothers and sisters in Gilbert, Arizona, which is a suburb of Phoenix. About 250,000 people is the population of Gilbert. We live next door in Mesa, population of almost half a million. When the temperature drops below 70 degrees, we feel like we're having a cold spell which is why we always bring water bottles with us so that we don't get dehydrated. But it is a joy to be here, to be able to uh, take a week's vacation in Hilton Head with my wife, Roberta. I'm glad that Pastor Fred Pugh and his wife, Joy, were able to take a similar vacation. And to uh, Pastor Fred, who is looking forward to hearing Nick Kennecott preach, I extend my humble apologies. Nick Kennecott is a dear friend of mine, and uh, the people here at Ephesus Baptist Church are very blessed to have a man of God like Nick, and uh, I hope you'll see him uh, as a Honda Accord, where if you take real good care of him, you get a lot of miles out of him. (laughs) Just don't let him run out of gas. Make sure he gets plenty of vacations, too. But he's a dear brother, and I consider it a real privilege and an honor to open the Word of God uh, with you today. And I would ask that you would turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let me read out loud verses 12 through the end of the chapter. I want to read verses 12 through 20. Let us hear the Word of God. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And may the Spirit of God that inspired these words be pleased to bless them to our hearts today. You probably know that the book of 1 Timothy is Paul's personal letter to Timothy, who was, to Paul, one of his own children in the faith. 
Paul here at the end of this chapter refers to him as his child in verse 18. And at the time Paul was writing this letter, Timothy was having some serious personal struggles there at the church in Ephesus. And so Paul wants to encourage Timothy, and he does this in this particular portion of Scripture by giving this brief outline of his own personal history. This is like a personal testimony. And I want you to notice in verse 12 how Paul says that he had previously been a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent or a violent man. And then he added the precious truth that he had received mercy. And he had received the grace of our Lord which had overflowed to him. And I hope that all of you who are here this morning are also recipients of the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you'll also look at verses 12 through 14, Paul contrasted what he was with what the Lord had done for him. And then in verses 15 through 17, he supports his claim by quoting what at that time had become known as a faithful saying. And this faithful saying concerns the purpose for which Christ came into the world. And do you know the purpose for which Christ came into the world? It was to save sinners. And do you see how Paul then attaches a personal note here which ties this faithful saying back to his own personal testimony of what kind of person he had previously been prior to his conversion. If we could summarize what what Paul is communicating in this text here, it might sound something like this. The church at Ephesus should not be pursuing the law, but be pursuing Christ who came into the world to save sinners, which is clearly seen in his saving of me, Paul, who is chief or foremost of sinners. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, today's passage of Scripture presents us with this amazing picture of the gospel. It is one of those rich, sweet texts in which Christ's Glory and grace just oozes out from every word. It is a text that we should consider while on our knees in humble adoration to the God of all grace and glory. It is so high, it is so lofty that our finite minds, which have been contaminated with sin, can never fully grasp. And it is so deep and it is so vast that we will never be able to pull out all of the wonderful riches that are contained herein. This text has been said that Paul wrote it, and as he wrote it, it is one that he brought forth out of the depths of his own soul. It has been said that he dipped his pen into his own heart as he wrote these words. So we ought to, in a sense, remove our shoes because we are on holy ground as we come to this passage of Scripture. If you look at verse 15, I'm reminded in this verse of the story of a man by the name of Thomas Bilney. 
who was born in England in the year 1495. He studied at Cambridge and was later ordained into the pastoral ministry. But he had no peace either in the study of the Word of God or in his ordination because he was still unconverted and he knew it. But in his studies, he came across our text for today and listen to how he described what happened as he studied 1 Timothy 1.15. He writes, I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul, O oh, most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul, in 1 Timothy. It is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced, that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief and principal. And Bilney then explains this one sentence, through God's instruction and inward working, did so exhilarate my heart being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair. And even immediately, I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness insomuch that my bruised bones leaped for joy. Vilni was instantly converted. Study in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. And he says that this passage made his bruised bones leap for joy. And I pray that will be the case with all of you today as we look at this portion of Scripture. Looking at verses 15 through 17, there are four thoughts that I want to bring to your attention. They are worthy of our consideration. And the first thought is this profound saying... In verse 15, the beginning of verse 15, Paul presents us with a profound saying. But before he does that, he introduces it with these words. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And Paul uses this expression five times in the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. He uses it to emphasize important statements. A saying which is trustworthy or faithful means that it is a general principle which is reliable. It is something that is believable. It is correct. It is so worthy and deserving of full acceptance, worthy to be received without question. And these kind of phrases alert us to something that is fundamental or foundational. They tell us that something very important has either just been said or is about to be said. And so they are trustworthy and they reinforce the argument that is about to be made. So when you see these these statements, it is as though Paul got out his yellow highlighter and highlighted these sayings as if to say, Now, Timothy, be sure to stress these truths. Make sure you get a hold of what is, being, is about to be said here. And remember that these pastoral epistles were Paul's final letters just before his death. These were the last orders from headquarters, if you will, the headquarters of the great apostle to the Gentiles. 
The time had now arrived for the Apostle Paul to pass on the torch to his understudy here, Timothy, or to Titus, the apostolic delegates that God had raised up. And that is why he stresses these particular sayings as being trustworthy. They're worthy of full acceptance. Can any of you tell me what is so worthy of these statements? What makes them deserving of our attention? Well, Paul tells us in verse 15, is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And wouldn't you agree that that really is the very heart and soul of the gospel? Christ coming into the world to save sinners. And because this truth is so trustworthy and deserving of our acceptance, we need to take a closer look at it by examining it in smaller, bite-sized pieces that explain who, what, and why. The who, what, and why of this trustworthy saying. So the first piece I want us to focus on this morning is who it was that came into this world. And Paul tells us it's Christ Jesus. He uses the title Christ, which means anointed one. And he attaches to this title the human name of Jesus, which means he saves. And taken together, these two words imply or communicate that this is the anointed Savior. The name Christ Jesus points us to the second person of the Godhead, points us to God who took to himself human flesh, who became a man, the infinite God-man, in order that he might be that fitting substitute, that he might be the one who would live that life without sin, and die that death on our behalf. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, The Savior Christ Jesus is the foundation stone of our hope. Upon the integrity of Christ Jesus depends the usefulness of our gospel. He is so loving, so great, so mighty, and so well-suited for all our needs that it is obvious that he was prepared from of old to meet our deepest needs. We know that this Jesus who came into the world to save sinners was God. This Jesus Christ was bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, yet he was eternally the Son of God and has in himself all the attributes which constitute perfect Godhood. What more of a Savior can anyone need than God? And so, Christ Jesus is the one that Paul is pointing to. That is the who of this trustworthy saying. Second part is the what. What this Christ Jesus did, Paul tells us in verse 15, he came into the world. And this short phrase here points us to the incarnation of Christ. It would be certainly a a momentous event if some great king had come into the world or some great angel had come into the world. But here we see God himself has broken into human history, has come onto the stage of our humanity. God has come into the world in a sense unlike any other event in history. He has taken to himself human flesh. 
And so although Christ was the Son of God, he left his throne in heaven. He was born in a manger. Think of him there as an infant. Look as he grows from boyhood to manhood, as he goes forth into the world to preach and to suffer. See him hanging there upon the cross, dying as our perfect substitute. Behold him laying there in that silent tomb. And then on the third day, bursting forth, ascending into heaven, where now he reigns at the right hand of God. Christ has come into the world. And that is the good news of the gospel. But there is more to that. The third piece we need to consider is why Christ came into the world. And Paul tells us in verse 15, it was to save sinners. He came with a purpose. He came on a mission. And his mission was that he might save sinners. He didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. He came in order to seek and to save those who were lost. And my friends, do you realize that even to this very day, the Lord Jesus is seeking those who are lost? And I wouldn't be surprised if there is someone among us today that would fit that description of being lost. You know that your life has been lived out in rebellion to God and his word. You've gone astray. Perhaps you've been brought up in a Christian home. You've always known about the Lord, but you've never really committed yourself to him. You've never really repented of your sins. You are lost, and Christ came to seek those like you who are lost. It's pleasant for us to hear again of that, uh, that one word which describes the character of those that Christ came to save. Here, he, Paul writes, he came to save those who are sinners, those who have violated the law of God, those who are rebels, to the kingdom of God, who are lawbreakers to the very word of God. Those are sinners. And there's some encouragement here because Christ didn't come to save great and mighty people. It wasn't that he came to save those who were in positions of great royalty or the rich. He came to save the lowly. He came to save those who are down and out. He came into the world to save sinners. So wouldn't you agree that this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance? Christ, he came into the world to save sinners. And maybe you're among those that he came to save. And so perhaps this is the day for you to be made right with God. Well, as we look at the word of God, if if you'll look at verse 15 with me. There is a second thought that demands our attention. And this has to do with Paul's personal application. Because here Paul speaks of Christ saving sinners and then he immediately adds the words, of whom I am the foremost. But why would he speak so disparagingly about himself like that? I mean, what's with this worm theology? We know Such self-abasement doesn't find acceptance in today's society. We live in a society where 
positive self-esteem thinking is promoted. People feel personally threatened by any type of self-criticism. You won't hear Joel Osteen talking like this. <laughs> Some people, they won't even sing Amazing Grace because they don't like the part where it says it saved a wretch like me. That's just too demeaning. And this kind of psychology is centered around what makes us happy. What makes us feel good about ourselves. So here we, we see Paul going against the flow. There are some Christians today who would even suggest that, that Paul was being too hard on himself here. That he had gone too far. When Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, he had planted dozens of churches by that time. He had masterminded the early Christian ministry almost single-handedly. He orchestrated the astonishing growth of this worldwide Christian movement that had spawned from a humble Jew who died on the shameful cross. And if anyone was ever entitled to a dose of self-congratulatory satisfaction, it was that famous apostle to the Gentiles. But you see, Paul doesn't do that here. He remembered his former life of pride and sin and how if it were not for the mercy and, and grace of God, he would still be in his sins. And you know what? If it wasn't for the grace of God, you and I would still be in our sins as well. And that's not the psychology of the Bible. Earlier, Paul had called himself in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, the least of the apostles. Later on in Ephesians 3, 8, he refers to himself as the least of all the saints. But now it seems he humbles himself even further by referring to himself as the foremost or the chief of sinners. He doesn't say, that was what I was. He says, that is what I am. I am the chief of sinners. I am foremost of sinners. Should we take Paul literally when he writes this about himself? Well, John Stott said common sense tells us not to take his statement as precise scientific fact. The truth is rather that when we're convinced and convicted by the Holy Spirit, an immediate result is that we give up all such comparisons. And that Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anybody could be worse. It is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. They realize that they are the worst of all sinners. Well, how do you see yourself? I'm willing to suggest that the closer you are brought to God, the more intimate you become with God, the more you will see yourself as the chief of sinners. You know the account of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he saw the Lord high and exalted? The reflex attitude was, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He saw God in all of his glory and beauty and immediately he saw himself in all of his sin. 
Later on, the Apostle Peter comes in close contact with the Lord Jesus Christ and the miracle of uh, this vast amount of fish who are brought into the net after they threw the net on the other side of the boat. And in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, Peter cries out, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So the, the, the more we see of God, the closer and more intimate we are brought to him, the more we will see ourselves as chief of sinners. This is the transformation that takes place in every Christian's life when they're converted. We might begin like the Pharisee in our Lord's parable who cried out, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. But then we end up like the tax collector at the back of the temple who could not even lift his head to heaven, but instead beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So in light of God's perfect holiness, Paul could write this way as a foremost sinner. And I hope you see yourself that way too. As Paul goes on in verse 20 to expose these false teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander, he does so in the awareness that he himself is really no better than them. And guess what? Neither are we. It's only by the grace of God that we're here today. Amen. And Paul knew that it was by the grace of God that he was who he was. And that is the same for all of us. And this gives great hope, though, to sinners. Because it doesn't matter what our background was, or where we came from, or what we did. If God could save the foremost of sinners, he could save us. So in verse 15, Paul gives us a profound saying with a personal application attached. We have this great gospel. We have this great Savior. And it is designed for the rescue of great sinners. And it brings us to a third thought that demands our attention in verse 16. And that points us to Christ's perfect work. You see, Paul no sooner gets the words out of his mouth that he is the foremost of sinners than in the very next breath he says, but I received mercy. And look back in your Bibles to verse 13. Here he mentions how he was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But in the next breath he says, but I received mercy. And that is how it should be in our lives. If we reflect on our past, if we reflect on our own sins, and we, we see how, how dark, how wicked, how vile and ugly they are, we should in the very next breath say, but I received mercy. Yes, Paul doesn't sugarcoat his past life. He doesn't minimize his sin, but he doesn't stop there and dwell on these things. Rather, he's quick to magnify the mercy of God and point out that he himself is a recipient of such wondrous grace. It's like the man who took his new truck off-road through two feet of mud and he had it covered from top to bottom with, with dirt and mud. And he was bragging about how he got every square inch of his truck muddied. But then he quickly said, 
but my new power washer got it so sparkling clean that you won't be able to find a, a, a speck of dirt on it. Our lives have been so muddied with sin, covered from top to bottom, contaminated, corrupted through and through, but the grace and mercy of God and the blood of Christ has washed them clean. Spurgeon said, Ken, he said, we think that we're honoring God when we think great thoughts of our sin. Well, let us remember that while we ought to think very greatly of our own sin, we dishonor God if we think our sin greater than his grace. God's grace is infinitely greater than the greatest of our crimes. And I beg you, therefore, get better thoughts of him. Think how good he is and how great he is. The Puritans were known to say for every one look that we take of ourselves and our sin, we ought to take ten looks of Christ. And so like Paul, we too must be quick to magnify the mercy of God in our lives. And at this point, we might wonder why God would have mercy on Paul. And the only thought is that he is a merciful God. He delights to show mercy. And Paul indicates that his experience of God's saving grace was not only a personal blessing to himself, which he gladly owned and appreciated, but it also had a wider purpose of providing hope for future sinners. It was a pattern, an example for others. Remember, Paul had been educated under the rabbi Gamaliel. He was the most celebrated rabbi of his day. And Paul could boast that he made progress beyond anyone else his age. Yet as skilled as he was in rabbinical learning, Paul was totally ignorant of the state of his own heart. Instead of being humbled as a sinner in the dust, he was lifted up with pride and self-conceit. And instead of being animated with love and compassion, he was inflamed with a fiery hatred and a wrathful zeal that led him to persecute other Christians and it led him to try to destroy the early church. He pursued his victims, even to foreign cities, showing no pity even to women and children, but dragging them all off into prison, casting his vote against them that they might be put to death. And in his madness and in his rage, he sought to force Christians to blaspheme the very name of Jesus. And what was the Lord Jesus Christ doing all that time that Paul was seeking to ravage and destroy the early church? He was bearing with Paul with great patience. And that is why Paul could later write uh, with experience... Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul knew what God's kindness and patience was like. He put up with Paul for a long time before he converted him. And here we see that Paul realized that God saved him, not just for his own benefit, 
but that he might be an example to others who are going to believe upon Jesus unto eternal life. Now, here's hope. Hope for the greatest of sinners. The message behind this is that if Christ would do this for a man like Paul, a man who put Christians in prison, a man who sought to have them put to death, a man who was the prototype of the Inquisition, a master of religious thuggery, there is hope for him, there's hope for us all. Amen? And so I hope you can see how Paul calls across to us, across centuries, saying, don't despair. Christ saved me, the chief of sinners, and he can save you too. Don't give up. God is merciful. And if he was pleased to show mercy to such a despicable wretch like me, he can show mercy to you. No other conversion has been recounted so profitably for the winning of sinners to Christ as Paul's. Paul was the chief of sinners. Oh, he was a great sinner. But can you see that the gospel is even greater than that? In great sinners, then, the grace of God is made conspicuous. Our God can turn great sinners into great saints. And I trust that he'd be pleased to do that among those of Ephesus Baptist Church. Well, if you look in your Bibles with me at verse 17, there's one final thought that demands our attention. And that is the proper response to this. How should we react to this gospel, this good news that Christ came into the world to save sinners? That he came into the world to save the worst of sinners, the chief and foremost of sinners. Well, Paul's response is that of praise. And this is the very place where he explodes into this doxology of praise. His heart here is like a volcano erupting with outbursts of delight. Paul could not help this outburst of praise. He must insert a doxology of here at this point. Because when he remembered his own conversion and pardon and his, his being entrusted with the ministry of the gospel, he was obliged to put down his pen and lift up his voice in thanksgiving to God. I mean, the greatest wonder to Paul was what God had done in his life. He had not only saved him, but he then determined that he would use him to bring the gospel to the rest of the world. He not only called him out of darkness into the wonderful light, but he called him to the gospel ministry. And that just blew his mind, if you will. And that is what led him here in verse 17 to this great benediction, this great praise to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Brethren, may it be with us as we reflect on what great things God has done in our lives. We ought to be praising God for our salvation. We should not allow a single day to go by in our lives where we don't get on our knees and we cry out, Lord, thank you 
for saving a wretch like me. Lord, I praise you that in your mercy and goodness you were pleased to open my eyes to the truth of the gospel. And I thank you, Lord, that Christ has come into this world to save sinners, sinners like me. May God help us to take Christ today as our Savior, to take his cross, to take his people, to take his gospel, and to enter into his joy forever. And may our bruised bones leap for joy this day forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this glorious gospel. This gospel that lifts up the Lord Jesus Christ, that turns on the spotlight of glory upon his person and his work, and opens our eyes to see what a great Savior we have in Christ Jesus. And what a marvelous message it is that God is pleased to reconcile sinners to himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see in light of of your word, in light of your truth, what great sinners we are. And I pray today for those who perhaps think that they're okay, that they're not so bad that they have not killed or stolen or pillaged, but help them to see, Lord, their sins of omission, that they have not loved you as they ought, that they have not obeyed your word, that they have broken your word in thought, in word, and in deed, and that they are guilty, and that they are condemned, and that they are under the wrath of God. Open their eyes, Lord, to the danger that they are in, and grant them grace that they might flee the wrath to come into the waiting arms of Jesus Christ. And as we see what great sin we have, help us to see that we have a greater Savior. Help us to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his love, in his sacrificial death, And help us to rejoice that Christ is alive forevermore. And as our high priest, he is interceding on our behalf. And the spirit of truth and grace has been poured out into our lives. And that we can walk in obedience and enjoy by the goodness of God and the power of the spirit. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that we will not be just hearers of it. But we'll do what it says and we'll rejoice this day in our own personal benedictions. To the Lord Jesus Christ we offer our praise. In his name we pray. Amen.